Good evening and welcome to this Retina UK webinar. Uh, this is one of a series of webinars we will be hosting uh, and we'll be delivering at least one on a different topic each month. We are really pleased to have with us today Avril Watson, a PhD candidate of stem cell biology in Professor Linda Lacko's lab uh, at Newcastle University. Avril is also a scientist at New Cells Biotech Limited. She is funded through the Marie Curie Action Project, STAR-T, uh, which focuses on diagnosis, treatment, and modeling of Stargardt's disease. Um, her focuses, uh, so her research is focused on uh, modeling Stargardt's disease with mini retinas generated from patients with late onset Stargardt's disease. Uh, so whilst Avril is giving her presentation evening, we'll be collecting your questions. So if you'd like to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens, uh, and we will endeavour to answer as many of those questions as we can at the end. If we're not able to get to your question today, it will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Avril. I'm just going to share the screen. Okay, um, hopefully you can all see that. Uh, so thanks again for joining me this evening. I'm really excited to be here and glad that you were able to join. Today I'm going to talk about mini retina, which is really a fantastic tool that we have nowadays to study inherited retinal generations and really any condition that can affect the back of the eye or the retina. So I've titled this talk, A Tool to un Unlock the Future of Restored Vision in Retinal Blindness, which I think this tool really is important for. So um, like Matt introduced, my name is Avra Watson. I'm a final year PhD student here at Newcastle University. Um, and I'm working on Stargardt disease, which is an inherited retinal generation. So I thought I'd give a little bit of a background to me. So if it isn't already noticeable from my accent, I'm originally Irish. Uh, I also have very characteristic Irish features, the red hair, the freckles and the green eyes. Um, and I lived in Dublin for the first 23 years of my life before making the move over to Newcastle here in the north of England. So I've been here for maybe about three years now and I think I've settled in really well. I think the Irish and the Geordies get on quite well. Um, and I am enjoying life here at the moment. So it's nice to be here. Um, aside from kind of my background, I also do really enjoy music. So you'll often find me in the lab, walking around with headphones on, listening to music, singing in my tissue culture when no one's listening. And I do like to play guitar on my own free time as well. Um, I love dogs, like many people. Um, once I see a dog in the street, I'm always the first over to try and uh, talk to it and make it be my friend. And like during the lockdown, many people, um, I became a plant mom. So my apartment back home is currently like a mini jungle, but I wouldn't have it any other way. So that's just history of my personality. But in terms of retinal research, um, I've actually always been interested in retinal research. Um, I moved to Newcastle about three years ago uh, to continue my studies um, with my PhD. So I'm currently in Professor Linda Lacko's group here in Newcastle University. And Linda is really well known in the field of inherited retinopathies, particularly for her research with mini retinas and generating these mini retinas from many people who have inherited retinopathies. 
Separate to this, she's also really well known for um, studying conditions at the front of the eye. So she's been involved in the process of generating corneal transplants. Um, and a lot of the work that we do here in this research lab will be described as translational. So that means that we'll find something that we can maybe one day turn into a therapy and help people gain back their sight. So this whole process of uh, inherited retinopathies has always been very interesting to me. And in my undergraduate and my master's degree, I also studied uh, different forms of retinopathy. So in my master's in Trinity College Dublin, I had the opportunity to work with Professor Sarah Doyle in her lab there. So she worked in the School of Medicine. And again, a lot of her research was focused on retinopathies. And in this project, I got to work on age-related macular degenerations. And I used mouse models of these conditions uh, to try and understand how the immune system can actually influence uh, different retinal disorders. So that was really interesting and kind of moved my research more towards uh, using cell models for research. Before that, uh, and this is probably the, the first instance of where I had exposure to inherited retinopathies and kind of kickstarted my interest, was when I worked with Professor Jane Farrer for a short project in my undergraduate year um, at university. And Jane is, again, is really well known for all of her work in inherited retinopathy. She does a lot of work on retinitis pigmentosa in particular, but one project that is still ongoing in that lab um, five years later um, is a project called Targa 5000, which basically aims to sequence all estimated 5000 individuals in Ireland that live with inherited sight loss to sequence their genes and try and find out what particular mutation they have that is causative of their condition. And this really, really fascinated me. I really enjoyed being able to see the patient aspect of the research and, you know, ultimately diagnosing patients through their genetics, I thought it was a really fantastic process and it really kickstarted my interest. And um, so from this, I knew I wanted to have my career in inherited retinal diseases, so much so that I left a very cushy lifestyle back home in Dublin, uh, where my family and my boyfriend lived to come here and continue my studies. So hopefully I'll be able to illustrate how exciting this research is and how it's moving in the right direction. And that one day we'll have even more therapies available on the market for people with inherited sight loss. So if I'm going to talk about mini retinas, I kind of need to go back to basics here and describe what the retina is. And this really is kind of a difficult thing to explain to people who, you know, don't really study the retina because it is a very complex tissue. But this tissue, it's located at the back of the eye and its most important role is obviously the process of vision. So from a researcher's perspective, I would arguably say that it's probably one of the most beautiful tissues to have the opportunity to work with. And this is because within the retina, there's this very unique and uh, very pretty patterning of cells uh, that we're able to actually see through various different processes that we can carry out here in the lab. But I think probably the best way for me to describe this patterning of cells is to compare it to cake. So cake is uh, obviously well known. I think we all enjoy cake. But for the purpose of this, I want you to um, imagine a multi-layer cake. So this cake has a vanilla layer, a lemon layer, a chocolate layer, you name it, any layer you want. And uh, between each layer, we also have a nice dollop of buttercream. And the retina is very similar to this because there's also these layers 
um, within the retina. And like each flavor of a cake is, you know, instantly recognizable by your taste, each layer of the retina is full of these cells that are very easily uh, recognizable by their, their role in the whole process of vision. And like the buttercream, there's also these spaces between the layers that actually allow the cells to make connections with each other and to talk to one another and pass on information that they've gained from maybe one side of the retina to the other side of the retina. So I like to imagine that process a little bit like a game of Chinese whispers where maybe one cell will get the first message and it'll be passed along a chain of different cells until it reaches the last cell where it can actually then uh, be recognized and be processed or maybe the message can be spoken out loud. So like vision, the light comes in from the front of the eye, it's passed along these uh, chains of cells. And then once it hits the last cell, which is actually in your brain, you can just see um, what's there in front of you without even thinking of it. So it really is a fascinating process. The fact that this just occurs without even thinking of it um, is, is really fascinating. So we try and mimic this uh, with mini retina. Uh, but before I talk about the mini retina, I want to talk about dysfunction within the retina and why that's important for when we study mini retina. So to talk about dysfunction, I need to introduce you to three main cell types. So I'm going to try and not bore you with too many details, but probably the most important cells in the retina are the photoreceptors. And these cells are the ones that can actually detect light and they can convert that light into a signal that's then read by your brain and is processed to a visual image. So we have two different types of photoreceptors. There's rod photoreceptors and there's cone photoreceptor cells. So with the rods, they're usually really important for low light vision. So they are really sensitive. They don't need an awful lot of light to work, but they don't have a uh, very high acuity. So you wouldn't be able to see sharp details with these. And they're usually the types of cells that are active at nighttime for night vision. But the opposite of these are the cone photoreceptor cells. And these aren't very sensitive, so they actually need an awful lot of light to work. So with that, they can actually recognize different, uh, different colors and they can combine different colors to make even new colors. So with the cone photoreceptor cells, these are very, very, um, they have high sensitivity in the terms that they can recognize very fine details. So we would use a lot of cone photoreceptors for maybe reading a book or watching the television or driving a car maybe. Uh, so they're, they're very important cells. And then another kind of layer of cells that's really important in the retina is the retinal pigment epithelium. And these have many, many roles in the retina, but probably one of their most important roles is that they support these photoreceptor cells. So they do form very, very tight. Um, layers between each other where that they can communicate and the retinal pigment epithelium is responsible for providing nutrients and food to the photoreceptor cells but also clearing away any waste that's produced during the process of, uh, of vision. So when visual blindness occurs it's usually a consequence of a defect in one of these cells so when these cells stop being so healthy uh, vision becomes um, becomes compromised pretty much. Um, so the reason why I'm telling you this is because if we wanna be able to develop um, effective therapies that can slow or stop the whole process of blindness, we need to find a way of keeping these different cell types alive and keeping them, for alive, keeping them alive for as long as possible. So now to talk about mini retina. So mini retina is basically retina that's produced in a normal human body. 
Um, mini retina in particular is development developing retina. So it, it would be it would be the type of retina that you would see um, in a baby that's forming um, in in its mother's uterus. So it has all of the same patterning of cells. This layer that the cake is basically still there. But the only thing is we, we're missing this retinal pigment epithelium that supports the photoreceptor cells. But it's still a really, really important model because it has all of the other neurons that are present in the retina. So that means that we can actually study a lot of diseases uh, using these mini retinas. So you might want to ask why are mini retinas so fascinating and why are they so important in our studies of inherited retinopathies? And basically, there's three main things that highlight the importance of mini retinas in inherited retinal research. So the first thing is for disease modeling. So we know that there's many, many, many different forms of inherited retinopathies. There's many different genes that cause inherited retinopathies. I think to date, there's over 300 different genes that are actually implicated in the development of an inherited retinal degeneration. And obviously we don't know absolutely everything yet. We're still learning. Every day we're finding new facts um, between different inherited retinopathies. So with this model, we're actually able to find out even more details about a disease that we might already know an awful lot about from other models, such as animal models, or maybe just from uh, human experiences itself. But with these organoids, we're able to actually take cells from patients that might have very rare phenotype or a rare um, symptom of this disease and we're able to model it in a lab and actually see what's going on inside the eye because obviously we can take someone's eye and see what's going on in there so this is kind of like a proxy we're, we're able to model this patient's condition but we can make many little mini mini retinas or mini eyeballs and we can study things um, in our own time and be able to find out things that we wouldn't be able to find out from just looking um, at someone's eye through a fundus, uh, a fundoscopy microscope or anything like that. So another really important um, benefit of using these mini retinas is that we're able to actually perform a process known as drug screening. So with drug screening, you basically have a large panel of drugs that might show benefit to any particular condition. Um, big pharma usually do a lot of drug screening, but because they have such large panels, they might not actually be testing these drugs against cells that are you know, unique to whatever condition that they're looking at. So for example, in the retina, if you're using a drug for retinitis pigmentosa, you want to be able to test this drug on a model that is specific to the retina because there's no point checking it in say kidney cells or liver cells uh, because they're not the same type of cells. We need like a neuronal cell model and the mini retina actually serves as a platform for this. So it actually helps us um, bring new drugs uh, to the table, drugs that might actually potentially cure a lot of conditions. So a lot in big pharma, a lot of these drugs are just thrown out the window because they'll show um, toxic effects, but they're not being tested in the correct cell types. So we serve this platform for testing drugs uh, to see if there is any toxic effects of the photoreceptors or if there's any toxic effects of the RPE, stuff like that. So it's a really useful model uh, for testing new drugs that could eventually make it to market one day. And then another um, kind of study that we would do is developmental studies. So we're able to actually track what 
stage of development in the human being that our organoids develop to. So in our lab, we do a process called single cell sequencing. And it's basically where we can take each individual cell of the retina and um, that we've developed in the lab here with stem cells. And we can compare it against uh, cells that have been taken from fetal retina or adult retina. And we can compare pretty much cell by cell how similar they are to each other. And we can get an idea of how old our organoids or our mini retinas are here in culture. And that's really important because we can actually see whether individual conditions occur during development or if they are actually occurring much later in life because a lot of conditions you only get maybe the symptoms in your 20s maybe later on but we can actually see signatures of dysfunction during the developing retina which is really interesting because we wouldn't be able to see that without the use of these mini retinas. So in our lab we do study quite a few different conditions and uh, we work on um, a particular form of retinitis pigmentosa. We also have some age-related macular degeneration projects ongoing and we also study other forms of macular dystrophy and I myself am working on Stargardt disease and another interesting one uh, we work on in, on retinoblastoma as well which isn't really in some cases it's inherited, but a lot of the time it's somatic as well, uh, as in like you just gain a mutation and then you can actually develop the condition. And using mini retinas, we've actually learned a lot about each of these individual conditions. Um, in the case of retinoblastoma, this is a childhood cancer. And using the organoids, we were actually able to pinpoint which cell type that the cancer actually starts in. So it's really interesting to be able to do that. And we've also been able to do drug screening and test new chemothera chemotherapeutic agents on these organoids to see if we can actually stop the cancer from for forming in that cell type. So it is really exciting research that hopefully will make a difference one day. For Stargardt disease, we use mini retina as a tool to see what the effects of the disease are. And in particularly, I'm working on a small subset of Stargardt disease cases that tend to have a late onset of disease symptoms. So instead of having a classical onset of maybe 10 to 20 years, and these patients actually don't get any symptoms until they're about 40 years of age. So we're using mini retinas to kind of try and figure out why, because if we can figure out how these patients have such a delayed onset, maybe we can try and target that and see if we can actually delay the onset of disease and other classical cases and let people have their vision for much longer. So basically mini retina are really useful for many, many conditions and hopefully they will make um, a difference one day. But just to give an idea of an overall process for one condition, I'm gonna talk about um, a form of retinitis pigmentosa retinitis pigmentosa type 12 and this particular condition is caused by mutations in PRPF31. So I mentioned earlier on that our organoids they don't contain retinal pigment epithelial cells but we can actually develop these as well from stem cells alongside the retinal organoids. So we can actually have two different models of the retina uh, growing at the same time and we can compare differences between each of these that are occurring so this is what we did for this study. It was basically, we generated many uh, retinal pigment epithelial cell lines from patients that had this condition. And we also generated some mini retinas. And we grew these for 230 days. They take a really, really long time to grow. If you imagine a human fetus takes a full nine months to grow, it's actually not too different for the eyeballs either. 
So uh, we basically did that and we were able to see very, very disease specific symptoms in our patient cell lines when we compared them with healthy, healthy control um, cell lines. So in the mini retina, we were able to see shorter cilia. So cilia are basically these hair-like structures that are really, really important for the health of the photoreceptor cell. And without these, the photoreceptor cell can't absorb light and, it can, and the process of vision can't occur. In the supporting tissues, the retinal pigment epithelial cells, there was defective waste clearance. So any of this waste that the photoreceptors were producing, the, the retinal pigment epithelium were not able to deal with that. They weren't able to break it down. And a result of that was actually that you got a buildup of all of this waste molecules, which ultimately ends up killing off the retinal pigment epithelial cells. And we see this in patients, in patients that have retinitis pigmentosa, they ultimately lose their photoreceptor cells because the retinal pigment epithelium underneath becomes compromised and it actually begins dying off. So then this isn't around anymore to feed the, the cells that live above it. So then ultimately everything ends up dying and that's, that's why you end up losing your vision. So it was really fascinating to be able to see this in cell models that we developed in the lab. And then one way that uh, we were actually able to stop this is we tried with a drug called rapamycin and rapamycin was actually able to stop this whole process of um, build up of these waste molecules and the waste pathways were able to be activated again and this completely removed the disease symptoms in these cell models so it's really promising that these types of drugs if brought further and further tested could actually stop disease progression in actual patients so it's really exciting research and it's really fascinating that you can see the translation of the work that we do in the lab to someday make it into patients and help with their symptoms of blindness so talking about actually going into patients. Um, I'm showing a picture here on the screen of um, a young guy, he's 24, and he's sitting in hospital here with his mum. His name is Jake Turnant. And he is actually from County Durham, which is quite near where I am at the moment. And he was the first patient in the UK to actually receive a gene therapy called Lux Turner for one of his um, conditions that caused inherited blindness. And this picture, it was taken during um, the pandemic. You can see them both wearing face masks. And uh, I find it really inspiring. But one quote that he said was that the last year for a lot of people was actually a very dark and miserable year. But for me, it was easily the best year of my life. And that's because he was treated with this gene therapy that was actually able to restore his vision. So for the first time in 24 years, he was able to actually see again. So it is really, really fascinating. Jake in particular, he was gradually losing his vision um, since he was born. And it was due to a condition um, that pretty much wiped out one of these um, proteins, a piece of the machinery that was essential for vision. And so to fix this problem, scientists came up with a way of packaging the instructions to make this missing piece of machinery into a little virus of all sorts, basically added this virus to the back of his eyeball with an injection, and then this virus was able to infect the cells there and release these instructions for making that protein that was missing, or the piece of machinery that was missing. So with this missing piece of machinery then, the whole process could occur again, and Jake was able to see, uh, to see again, he was able to do this process of vision and his vision was restored. So it's a really promising story and really exciting. 
And um, it really does highlight the fact that retinal research is probably one of the most exciting fields at the moment because it is rapidly developing. Every day there's new things coming out, there's new therapies on the markets, new things in clinical trials. Um, so hopefully we do see a lot more success stories in the future um, and many more people do gain their vision back. So of course, um, there is a lot of challenges with this. Um, the main challenges really is that the cells of the retina, they don't regenerate. It's not like your skin cells where they're constantly replenishing themselves, like your hair, your hair continues to grow. With the retina, once the cells die, they're gone. Unfortunately, they, they can't come back. So when we're thinking of developing a therapy, we need to really focus on keeping those cells alive. We need to also focus on getting there before the cells die. So that's kind of the first challenge. The second challenge that we need to, to encounter is the fact that many people in the UK and in the world, in fact, they don't actually have a genetic diagnosis of their condition. So many people will go to the doctor, the doctor will look at them and based on their symptoms, they'll say, oh, you have retinitis pigmentosa or you have Leber's congenital amaurosis, you have Stargardt's disease. But very few people actually undergo genetic sequencing and they get their mutation that is actually causative of their condition. And this is really, really important because if there is new therapies that get developed, and um, there's always, always these clinical trials, but to be eligible to actually go for a clinical trial, you need to actually have a genetic diagnosis of your condition so that they can make sure that you're an appropriate candidate for this therapy. So if there is anyone who, you know, is thinking about genetic screening, I would really, really recommend going forward for it because this piece of information is very, very crucial um, for not only your diagnosis and your prognosis of how the condition will, you know, develop over time, but it's also really important in case any, do, any therapeutic options do come up that you're eligible for that you might want to enlist in. Another challenge that we face is there is an awful lot of variability in inherited retinopathies. And I'm sure you, you're all quite aware, even within families that have the same condition, the symptoms are not always the same. Some people always get the symptoms earlier. Some people get them later. Uh, some people might not get them at all. So it, it's crazy. Like, even though you might have the genetics to say that you'll have this condition, you might never develop it in your life. So there is a lot of variability and this kind of needs to be addressed um, before making kind of a one size fits all therapy. It's also really difficult because making a therapy is a very, very expensive process. And to do this, they need to have many people with the same condition so that they can actually invest the money in. If there's one person with one condition and one person with the other condition, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be easy to decide which patient will get the therapy. So they're trying to find ways of maybe treating symptoms that affect everyone so types of conditions types of uh, treatments that might you know increase the health of photoreceptors in all conditions would be an amazing therapy because it would help so many people so that's kind of the main three challenges but there's also um difficulties in the strategies so like sometimes the strategies are just too difficult and you can't actually do the same types of treatments and um, that you might be able to do for other conditions. So like in this condition that I just mentioned with Jake, um, his particular condition suited the type of therapy that was generated. So basically it was just a missing piece of the puzzle. They were able to give him the missing piece of the puzzle and that was it, his vision was restored. When a lot of other cases it's more complicated, sometimes the missing piece of the puzzle is far too big to be able to put inside a virus. So they need to come up with new approaches to be able to actually you know, deliver the instructions to cells 
uh, to make these proteins, but we're just not there yet. But everyday advances are being made. So, you know, it's not to say that there won't always, that this will always be a problem. It's just one that we have to encounter in our research at, at the moment. Finally, another challenge is cell replacement. So, you know, I mentioned that we use stem cells to make midi retinas. So you might be asking, why can't we use stem cells, you know, make these photoreceptors to replace the unhealthy ones that are in eyes or maybe to make retinal pigment epithelium that we could put in the eye, we could transplant it in there. And yeah, that's definitely an approach that people are investigating. And I think in the future, it actually will hopefully be a process. But at the moment, there is still issues with rejection. So um, you might have heard from people who might have had kidney transplants or other types of tissue transplants. They don't always get accepted in the body. So we need to find a way that if we're going to transplant these cells into the eye, that we know that they're going to stay there. And it's not a waste of your time or a waste of resources that ultimately it will work out for you. And you don't have to undergo this um, process of pretty much having surgery on your eye. So the main challenges, but I don't want to leave it on a bad note. So I do want to say there is a lot of hope in this field. Like I said, it's rapidly advancing every day. New advances are being made um, and it is a really exciting uh, research field to be in. New therapies are being conceptualized um, in labs and new conclusions are being made. And it's only a matter of time before more therapies are on the market to prevent um, inherited blindness. And finally, I do wanna commend those with blinding conditions for their bravery and their resilience, because you play an enormous role um, in this retinal research. Like it's very easy for me to talk about this, but I myself have never experienced retinal blindness. So, you know, it is really, really um, inspiring that people do wanna be involved in this and they're, you know, very open to sharing their stories. And I really appreciate that as a retinal researcher researcher so yeah that's pretty much uh, it from me um, I hope I didn't bore you guys too much and I hope I was able to uh, pass on how exciting retinal research is and if you do have any questions please feel free to ask them or if you're a little bit shy my email is also on the screen and you can send me an email at any time and I've also included a website for the research that we do in Linda's lab if you're interested in finding out more so thanks very much. Avril, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. Um, so for, for you people looking at home, watching at home, um, please do leave your questions in the, in the Q&A section. Um, so the website that uh, Avril was just referring to is www.retinalstemcellresearch.co.uk. Uh, we'll share that information in the, um, in the email we send as a follow-up. Um, so Avril, my, my first question to you is, how do you grow a mini retina? What's the process that you go through? Oh, so it's a long process. Um, pretty much what we'll do is we'll first take some skin cells from the patient that we want to make the mini retina from. So this first process, we take a biopsy. So it can either be a blood biopsy or it can be a skin biopsy. And we'll basically reprogram these cells. That's the process that it's called. So we'll take back the fact that they're a skin cell or a blood cell, and um, we'll bring them back to the state where they're a stem cell. So stem cell is essentially a cell that can become any other cell in the body. It's where we all have originated from. So it's really going back to the beginning. And with this, then we can, you know, put it in a dish or in a flask in, um, in the lab and we can add different uh, food and different supplements and chemicals that'll pretty much tell that cell, I want you to be a retina cell. 
and we'll do that and we culture them in suspension so that what that means is they'll form these little balls and uh, they float in the media and just almost like magic they can somehow become retina that just self patterns itself so we actually don't have to do much we just have to feed them every day so we're basically mums and dads here for maybe six to eight months uh, we feed them three times a week and uh, at the end we have these mini retinas they have photoreceptors that are somewhat functional and um, they're not really on par with adult photoreceptors but they're very very similar to maybe uh, the type of photoreceptors that you would find in a 30 week old fetus so that's really the process but like I said it's very time consuming very long-term cultures we really do take care of them with all all the efforts that we have um, but yeah at the end of the process they form really nice mini retinas excellent i'm assuming you don't kind of feed it a happy meal three times a week it's no 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 carefully for carefully formulated media it gets added it's basically just liquid food it's like feeding your uh your flowers with plant food at the, whenever you buy them from the supermarket something similar to this excellent that's fantastic um we we've had a comment rather than a question um so comments uh is thank you so much avril that was so interesting and definitely gives me hope that one day there may be a treatment or even better a cure for RP, um, certainly something that we are all um, hoping for. Yeah. Um, so, so what what area of um, kind of treatments do you think is the most promising at the moment for the next round of treatments, cures, whatever it is we want to call them? So it really depends. I mean, for me, I would read up an awful lot about Stargardt disease, so I would probably know more um, potential cures for Stargardt disease. So for this Stargardt disease, um, at the moment, there's a new therapeutic type, well, therapeutic strategy for a very specific type of mutation that can actually cause what's called a splicing defect. So this is pretty much when, you know, uh, you have your genes that are expressed um, in your body and sometimes they're not expressed in the correct way due to these splicing defects. So basically they found a new therapy that's able to better modulate or manage the type of splicing that will take place in a cell so they're actually able to say no you're not supposed to do this you're supposed to do this and then that will ultimately stop this splicing this event happening and then ultimately you get the correct version of that gene being made in the body and then everything that follows then that the cells remain healthy oh that's probably a bit complicated even me it's a little bit hard to get my head wrapped around that type of technology but um, there's there's many different therapeutics for many different um, different conditions, but I will probably know the most for Stargardt disease. Excellent, excellent, that's fantastic. Um, so in terms of these the different therapies, um, I mean you've mentioned stem cells, so I know there's lots of research and things going into into that. Um, you know what what other potential therapies are out there for um, for people with these conditions? So at the moment, a lot of it is just kind of trying to keep the cells alive. So a lot of it is like advice. So for age-related macular degeneration, for example, they tell people to not have vitamin A because vitamin A is, um, or sorry, they tell people to supplement with vitamin A. People with age-related macular degeneration should have more vitamin A because it actually helps uh, the cells stay alive for a little bit longer. So most of the therapeutics at the moment aren't really classical therapeutics. They're more like supplements to try and delay the progression of disease. And um, for the moment, most of the, well, 
the main therapy that's come out is Lux Turner, which is what I described uh, Jake as receiving. That's probably the most successful to date. It's the only one that's been FDA approved. But there's very various ones in clinical trial and um, that will hopefully be uh, deemed safe to be actually treated in patients. Um, and then we can have something that will actually, you know, stop progression rather than delaying it long term. Excellent. Um, so, so what um, what can people with um, inherited retinal dystrophies do to kind of, you know, look after their sight? Well, it depends again on the condition. So we know that, for example, smoking is really, really um, harmful to the eyes. It produces a lot of really nasty chemicals that can actually kill off some of the cells in your eyes. So, you know, people with inherited retinal dystrophy should definitely not smoke. Um, I mean, no one should really smoke um, with a condition that it can affect your eyes. Um, other things like, you know, um, making sure you have a good diet, making sure you're getting enough of your leafy greens because they're really important for the chemicals in your eyes. Um, also avoiding sunlight because the sun is actually quite harmful to not just your skin, but also your eyes. So if there is inherited disease um, in your family, then, you know, you should make it a routine to wear sunglasses when it's too bright, stuff like that. Um, but again, like most of the time, if you have an inherited retinopathy, I mean, regular checkups and also making sure that you receive your genetic diagnosis, because I think that is really a crucial element to having um, any type of inherited disease is to have a, a confirmed genetic diagnosis of it. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so we have another we have a question here. Um, so it says, does vitamin A pulmonate pulmonate? Yeah, sorry, help RP cells. Help RP. So it can, I'm sure it can. Vitamin A is really important for even healthy cells. So I, I imagine it could help. I'm not sure what palmitate is, but vitamin A as a vitamin is very helpful to all retinal cells. And that's because the process of vision actually uses vitamin A. So vitamin A is this uh, molecule that actually can't be made by our body. Our bodies are usually quite good at making the things that we need to survive. But vitamin A is just one that we actually need to obtain from our diet. So you can obtain vitamin A from your leafy greens, like I said, but you can also supplement this. So in some cases, um, it's really useful. Um, but in some cases, you also need to avoid it. So you do need to be a little bit careful and you should always consult your doctor first before taking anything like that. Excellent advice. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned earlier about it being really important that people get a, uh, a genetic diagnosis um, so they can really understand the, the condition, the gene that's causing the effect. How can, how can people go about um, obtaining their genetic diagnosis? Well, usually if um, you do have any issues with your sight, you would go to the opticians and they're likely to refer you on if they think that it's something and that could be inherited if there's family history and stuff like that. So really, if you do notice something with your eyes, the most important thing is to, you know, not leave it. You should go and, you know, seek advice from an ophthalmologist. They'll be able to give you more sound advice, whether it's something that's corrected by glasses or whether it's something that you should maybe investigate a little bit further. I think also your GP would help you with information like this as well and will refer you in the right direction. Um, but it is important to just not leave it because ultimately, like I said, if there is a therapy available, we want to be able to get in there as early as possible before the cells die off. So it is really important to go to the doctor and just try and get it done soon as. That's perfect. 
Um, and there is more information around um, getting genetic testing, um, you know, information about your genetic diagnosis on um, the Rest in the UK website. So it's restinuk.org.uk forward slash genetics. Um, so our Unlock Genetic package is there. Um, so we've got a couple of other questions. Do you share information with other researchers either in the UK or worldwide um, so that you can learn from their research and vice versa? Um, excellent presentation and information. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, of course we do. Yeah, we try and make research as accessible as possible and um, not just to other researchers in the world, but also people who live with conditions. And I guess this is like one of the reasons why we do these types of webinars. But yeah, a lot of scientific research and um, the aim of scientific research is to publish this in journals so that other people can see our work. And, you know, hopefully our work will inform the next line of questions that, you know, want to be addressed. Um, we also have like large conferences, so I'm actually going to a conference this Saturday um, I'm going to the US, so I'll present some of the results that I've had from my studies and my other colleagues will also present the results that they've had on their studies and, you know, other people from other groups will be there doing the exact same thing. So we do try and meet with other retinal researchers as often as possible to try and find out what's happening in the field and to keep everything quite relevant and to make sure that not everyone's doing the same thing. Um, ultimately, we want to be able to, you know, address as many questions as possible, and we don't want any, you know, redundancy in the research. So, brilliant. Thank you. Um, so, Debbie's asked a question. Um, so, so, thank you for the clear explanation and for all your hard work. Do you know anything about the research into RPGR? Okay. Um, I don't know. Um, so, usually in labs, they'll you know, not only study one particular condition, but they'll also study one particular gene, because like I said, many different genes can cause the same type of symptoms and the same condition. So RPGR is um, a protein. So ultimately the gene, um, this gene would, you know, be quite a large gene and it needs to have its own line of research, which unfortunately we don't cover in our group. Um, but I'm sure there's much information online and if I do come across any research groups, I can maybe pass on some information if you're interested in finding out some stuff about that. That's great. Um, Debbie, I'm sure we have some information um, within the organisation, so I'm quite happy to share that with you um, privately afterwards. Um, Rod has asked, um, have you got any info on cone dystrophy research? Um, not particularly. So cone dystrophy, again, it's just um, where the cones degenerate. So they, these are these cells that, um, you know, are really important for reading and writing and they perceive colour vision. And um, so some of the conditions that we would work with will have a cone dystrophy. So cone dystrophy is kind of like more of a process. It just depends which cell type is affected first. So there's cone rod dystrophy, cone dystrophy, rod cone dystrophy, it really depends on which um, cell type is affected first. So this process we do sometimes see in some cell lines. So in my own uh, research study, I have a patient line that has a confirmed diagnosis of Stargardt disease, but is also so severe that it's actually borderline cone rod dystrophy. So uh, I do a little bit of research on this, but it wouldn't be the main aim of um, the project that I have here. So I wouldn't really have too many answers for it. But again, I'm sure there's some information on the Retina UK website about this condition. And so with that, um, with that particular question in mind, would that um, very much depend on a genetic diagnosis again as to um, what research is being done about that particular gene? 
a lot of the time yeah like we often find that like that's quite a severe feeling or quite a severe symptom to have so we try and make correlations between mutations and their effects on uh, these proteins that are important for vision so sometimes a mutation might just you know change one very small thing that'll maybe the protein won't function as well as as it used to maybe it's a little bit slower at doing something um, but for other mutations, uh, they can completely wipe out the function of a protein. And we see this a lot in cone rod dystrophy or cone dystrophy, where basically the protein that's important for that cell's health and survival is just completely lost. And it really accelerates that type of symptom. So you see quite an early onset of disease with that. So again, it is very mutation specific. Um, yeah, pretty much. Great job. Thank you. Um... So recent news reports said the government had allocated £15 million to help research into motor neuron disease. Does retinal research receive any such government funding? Uh, and if not, do you know why not? There's a question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a great question, actually. Um, there is a lot of funding available um, for retinal research. And usually in terms of the government they wouldn't really put out a call specifically for retina research and um, they would usually just put out a call for general funding and then you would apply your lab would apply for that funding and say what it's for so uh linda lacko who's uh, the leader of this group that's pretty much her main job is you know searching for uh calls for funding and being able to um provide these applications for funding to try and get that but that's not just from the government that's from many different funding bodies uh, in the uk and especially charity-led ones as well so like retina uk fund a lot of projects and foundation fight and blindness in several different places also do it so Really, we get funding wherever we can, um, but a lot of funding is actually generated um, by charities. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that as well. Excellent. Thank you um, for that, Avril. That, um, that leads me very nicely um, into my little bit um, at the end. Um, so that is all of our questions that we've had come in this evening. Thank you for being so candid with your answer, uh, your answers, um, and for such a great presentation. It's, um, it's really good to know that... Um, this kind of research is ongoing um, and you know some of the innovative ways that we, we're looking to kind of um, say we you, people like yourself are looking to um to to find cures and treatments and things for um for our ranges of conditions um so huge thank you avril um fantastic presentation um so as mentioned at the beginning of this evening's session, um, we are planning to do at least one webinar every month. Um, and over the next coming months, we have uh, different topics, um, including different types of technology. Um, we have um, one around the access to work scheme. And we've also got a mini series on Usher syndrome. So those are coming up over the next couple of months. So have a look on our website and our um, newsletters and things that come out to you for information on those. Um, so Retina UK is a registered charity. We receive no government funding and rely on our wonderful supporters to raise funds needed to provide med uh, vital services. Let me try that one again. Um, so we are a registered charity. Um, we receive no government funding and rely on our wonderful supporters, such as yourselves, um, to raise the funds needed to provide vital services and invest in the groundbreaking medical research, such as what Avril is doing at the moment. 
Um, so you can now register um, to walk, jog or run an ultra marathon for Reston UK for just one pounds. Um, so there are events going on from the South Coast all the way up to the Lake District. Um, you can register by the 30th of April, so you've got two days to do this, um, to get a discounted rate. You can visit um, www.retinauk.org.uk forward slash trek, or you can call Simon, who is uh, one of our fundraising managers, on 077-369-25174 um, to find out a little bit more. We'll put this information in a follow-up email. Uh, alternatively, um, you, if you'd just like to make a donation to support this kind of work that Avril's doing um, through Retina UK, uh, we would be so very, very grateful. And you can visit our website, so again, retinauk.org.uk forward slash donate. Or you can even fundraise for us just with your colleagues um, or ask your employer to select Retina UK as um, their organisation's charity of the year. Again, contact the Retina UK fundraising team for more information on how you can do that. Um, so we will be sending out an email over the next couple of days, um, which has details of where you can re-watch this fantastic presentation um, and details on how you can book onto other events that we have coming up. Uh, we'll also be seeking your feedback um, on today's session. Uh, we really do value all of your feedback um, and yours today will certainly help develop our webinars and our, our other services going forwards. So Avril, thank you ever so much for your time this evening. And to everybody that's watched tonight, thank you very much and goodbye.